This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. I appreciate you tuning in. Our question today is, why do we pray to God the Father if all authority has been given to Jesus? And this question stems from, I think, some confusion about the nature of God. So biblically, when someone worships God, and that would include prayer and song, we sometimes sing and we sometimes say in our prayers we are addressing uh, the Father or the Son or the Spirit. But we, when we address Father, Son, or Spirit, we're not addressing Father, Son, or Spirit exclusively. Um, and in fact, it's impossible to do so because God is one. So let me offer a few passages to uh, kind of get the ball rolling here. So Jesus says in John five twenty two and 23, he says, Not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all who will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So think about that for a second, and I'm going to add another passage here to the board. Second John uh, verse 9 says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, and the one who does abide in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So, Biblically, one cannot honor the Father without without at the same time honoring the Son. And obedience rendered to one is obedience rendered to the other. Right. So, for example, you know, as we saw in saying in John nine with regard to the teaching of Christ, abiding in that means we have fellowship with God, and fellowship with God is not fellowship with the Father exclusively, or the Son exclusively, or the Spirit exclusively. No, He says we have both the Father and the Son. And take for another example, Matthew twenty eight nineteen, 19, uh, where Jesus said, baptism is in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So scripturally, no one can be baptized in the name of the Father without at the same time being baptized in the name of the Son. And, you know, we can and rearrange the names any way you want. It, it'll still be true. Uh, you can't have fellowship with the Father without having fellowship with the Son, biblically. And so when we think of deity um, when we think of God as made up of different components, we run into trouble. And I think that's what's really behind this this question is is a losing is losing the sight of the oneness of God. You know, why do we pray to the Father versus praying to the Son? Well, biblically you're praying you're praying to both. You may be addressing one or the other, but it's not to the exclusion of the others of the Son or the or the Spirit. And so we you know what happens is we end up considering Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three separate gods rather than one God and three manifestations of that same God. Uh, so God has, he simply hasn't revealed himself in, in that way as three separate gods. When Moses said in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, he said, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's as true now as it was then. You know, Scripture describes God in different ways and with different names. But they are all pointing to one true God, right? He's described as different persons, but they're all pointing to one true God. And we'll talk more about that in in a moment. I want to offer up a few more uh, biblical passages, bi- biblical examples, rather, and um, just for food for thought, and, and I think will help contribute to, you know, our understanding of God and also how we might address this question if someone brings it up, or maybe we have this question ourselves. So, you know, we can we can know God only through faith in his revelation. And we have to accept that an infinite being will reveal himself 
in a way that finite minds can understand. You know, Moses said in Deuteronomy 29 that the revealed things belong to man and the hidden things belong to God. And so we have to cope with that and we have to cope with and be satisfied with, I should say, with what God has revealed. And what we have to cope with is the figurative language that is handed down to us to explain spiritual concepts and matters in terms of human experiences and ways that we can understand. Uh, you know, that's why Jesus spoke in parables, I'm persuaded. It was because he related to people and he gave us, you know, his teaching was so accessible and relatable because he uh, taught deep spiritual things in a way that ev- everyone could understand, right? In in terms of weddings and feasts and harvest and uh, family relationships and fathers and sons and things like this, right? We can all get our heads around that. And he used those teachings to uh, help us understand him and his father and their relationship and their expectations and the kingdom or the rule that he came to establish. And so father and son have a figurative, if we're, if we're going to focus on those two words in particular, father and son have a figurative and not a, a literal use regarding deity. And when we go to scriptures and we're thinking about, um, you know, prophecies or passages that refer to the son or the father, sometimes those words are used interchangeably. And it's going to feel like we're venturing wide of the mark for a second, but just bear with me for a moment as I, I again, I offer up a, a few more passages. So in Exodus 4 and verse 22, God refers to himself, uh, not as father, but he is describing his people, Israel, who have descended from Jacob uh, 400 years uh, that, that they were in Egypt and they've you know, they've become a whole nation. They're a nation of slaves, but they are a people descended from uh, one individual. And he calls them uh, his son. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And so I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. And behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So that is um, in anticipation of the final plague that was going to come upon on Egypt. But I just want to single out that text because again of the figurative language that is that is used, God is by implication the father of his people whom he calls his son and he wants uh, them to be let go, his people collectively to be let go to serve him. And he calls them his firstborn in this text also. Uh, you have uh, Israel is my firstborn. And what that means is biblically and you'll have to go into more detail on your own. But the way that word is used, firstborn, is not pointing to uh, chronologically when Israel was born, so to speak, or even uh, you know when it's used of Jesus. Obviously, it's not talking about chronology, but it's talking about preeminence. And so it's when firstborn is applied to the people of Israel, it's talking about their preeminence over all other people uh, on the earth at that particular time. Um, and in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29, Paul talks about all people, all humans being the offspring of God, all people being made in his image, but not all people have a special standing with God. And throughout scripture, they're referred to as the people of God. And that's uh, our other series that's ongoing. And I encourage you to listen to that. But this is the language that God, uh, one of the ways that God describes his people is that of being his firstborn or having this preeminent position. And that's also the language that's used to describe uh, Christ in prophecy 
and uh, fulfilled prophecy in the New Testament when the apostles are appealing to those texts like Psalm chapter 2 or Second Samuel, and they're describing the preeminence of Christ that is proven uh, and demonstrated by his resurrection. And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, Psalm 2, 7, Acts 13, 33. And so he is spoken of as the firstborn and Colossians. He's spoken of as the only begotten, which indicates again that uniqueness, but not an inferiority to to his father. In fact, you know, as as I mentioned earlier in prophecy, when the character or the person of God is spoken of um, in messianic terms, and so prophecy pointing forward to the coming of Christ, sometimes you'll find names that are used of uh, the Father. In fact, Jesus is called Christ is called everlasting Father in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. Uh, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And so we may be familiar with those other descriptions that are named there, the Prince of Thieves, uh, Prince of Peace, rather, not the Prince of Thieves. That's a different story. Uh, Mighty God, but Eternal Father is one of the names that is given to to Jesus. So think about that and how that speaks to, again, the, the oneness of God and how we're, we're trying to cope with the figurative language that Scripture uses, I think, to communicate to us that God is personal, uh, that he that he is loving and that he is caring. Uh, but he is nevertheless one, even though he has manifested himself in these different ways. Uh, another word that the that the Bible uses is simply the word in John chapter one. You're probably familiar with that prologue there. As it describes Jesus, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So there John is is saying that Jesus is God. He's calling Him the Word, and he'll go on to say how the Word became flesh. And uh, But notice He is... The word Jesus is co-eternal with, with God. Uh, he is he is the creator, and creation is is his handiwork as much as it, as it is the Father's, as much as it is the Spirit's. Uh, so, we, again, we can't allow ourselves to have this kind of component concept of of God. Uh, Jesus is is God as much as the Father is, as much as the Spirit is. And he is eternal, he is all-powerful, he is the creator. Uh, but nevertheless, we are talking about the same same deity, the same God that is spoken of throughout Scripture. Yahweh, Jehovah, Jireh, all the names that are given to him. We're going to talk more about those here in a, in a minute. Let me give you another prophecy. This was from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. He says, As for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so there again, that is speaks that speaks to uh, the oneness of God and the the shared nature that uh, Jesus and the Father have. It's we're talking about the same the same being. And Revelation, uh, going to the uh, further into the New Testament now. In Revelation, the message was from God, uh, and it was also from Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, read verses 11 through 18. Alpha and Omega is applied to Christ. He is the beginning and the end. 
And notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, chapters uh, verses 7 through 8, and then verses 17 and 18. Notice when Jesus is addressing those churches, what he says is what the Spirit says, right? So think about the implications of that. And you're, when you read, especially the Gospel of John in John chapter 5, 6, and 12, you're going to find very similar statements also about Jesus with regard to his Father and what he is saying. Um, and his Father is saying that they are the exact same thing and that he is speaking with the authority of his Father. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, the Lamb, Jesus, is in the midst of God's throne with the fullness of the Spirit, chapter 5 and verse 6. So all of that to say, you know, we don't have to look very far into Scripture before and, and read very much Scripture before this um, component concept of God really breaks down. And it becomes increasingly difficult to invoke God the Father without at the same time God the Son or Spirit. Right? And so we find lots of figurative language and we can see you know, the Father is being put forth as in the dominant role and we pray to the Father remembering the example that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is your name, holy is your name. And John chapter 16, Jesus says, whatever you ask my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Those are good reasons to pray to our Father. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And we should do that. But it's also true that Stephen prayed in Acts chapter 7 and verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Paul implored the Lord three times in 2 Corinthians 12 regarding the thorn in his flesh that he wanted removed, whatever that was. Um, and the Lord said no. And in that context, in verses 8 through 10, he identified the Lord to whom he was praying as Christ. Right? So we we find that in these passages that you know, when we pray to the Father, we're praying to the Son, we are praying to the same God. You know, John wrote to those who believe on the name of the Son of God, saying that if we ask according to His will, He hears us. Right? And so again, in 1 John five thirteen through 15, he's talking about praying to Jesus. So prayer is offered, worship is offered to both Father and Son. And I would argue, biblically, that means God. That means deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't allow prayer to fragment God, right? And and try to pray to one role that has been put forth figuratively in Scripture to help us understand God. Uh, we shouldn't put one role or emphasize one role to the exclusion of others or to, try to address one to the exclusion of, of the others. It's just, it's not possible, it's just not possible. The Old Testament alone gives many descriptive names or roles of God. And I said we would come back to this earlier. Um, and I'm gonna just going to throw out a few for you here. Different names or descriptive names that are used to describe uh, God. So El Shaddai is one of those in the Hebrew. It means Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High God. Adonai, Lord or Master. Yahweh, Lord and Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner, Jehovah Roth, the Lord my shepherd, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. And there's just so so many more. I'll leave further investigation to you. But the point is, is that you can't invoke um, you know, the Lord and Master without 
invoking the Lord your shepherd or the Lord that heals or the most high God. You can't invoke God the judge without also praying to God the Savior. Right? It, it Again, from the biblical perspective, it's just impossible because God is, is one. In Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, I'll end with this. In Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, it says that, I am John, and I heard and I saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He is one. Worship Him in song, worship Him in prayer and service on the terms that He has specified. You know, I've known professing Christians who had taught that it is sin to worship Jesus in song. There's so many things wrong with that doctrine. It's folly and it will lead to condemnation for sure. But just think about all the passages that we've read thus far about honoring the Father and the Son and, and being unable to honor one without the other. It's incredibly sad that professing Christians can come to those conclusions. They simply need to pick up their Bibles and read them more carefully. And we shouldn't allow such matters to become divisive issues when they're so clearly set forth in Scripture. We can only know what God has revealed about Himself and nothing more. And there will be many things that we can explain logically while we are here, but we can and should be satisfied with what He has said. And that should humble us and make us see our ignorance and sin and strive to do better. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.